In this section, I mean. Wherever you want to sit. Wherever you want to sit. I'm good. Yeah, you're good. All right. Somebody's birthday? Yes. When when was your birthday or when is your birthday? The 10th. Oh, that was a long time ago. That was a very long time ago. That's not even that doesn't even count as belated. That's like <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey Andy, good morning. All right, we're going to get started this morning. I, I want to start us off this morning, as, as you guys know, we are studying, uh, uh, kind of using uh, John MacArthur's book, uh, 12 Ordinary Men, uh, speaking of the apostles. We're, 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 we're using that book as, as kind of a catapult to talk about uh, the apostles. And I, I wanted to just start us off by asking a question. Um, and that question is, is out of all the men... That we have studied thus far, which one of them do you think is the most unlikely man for Jesus to choose to be his disciple and apostle? So far. All of the above, sure. But like which one would you say like stands out amongst the ones that we've studied thus far that would be the most unlikely man from a... From a worldly perspective, from our perspective, to to be able to, to to be one that is chosen by Christ, to be His apostle. I've heard Peter. Any any other suggestions? We haven't studied that yet. Yeah, we haven't studied. It has to be one we studied so far. Okay. Have you guys been here when we've studied? No. <laughs> Peter, I, I think Peter's probably the most, uh, probably thus far would be the one that at least most popular folks would say, ah, he's probably the most unlikely. And I wonder that uh, if today as we study uh, the two men that we're going to be looking at this morning, I, I wonder if maybe that answer will change. And so I bet it will. And so I'm going to start by reading, uh, reading uh, for us uh, the... The call of Matthew uh, in Luke chapter 9. And this is what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous... But sinners, let's pray. Uh, our gracious Lord, we are thankful today uh, that that you have uh, indeed Christ has come to call the righteous, call the sinners and not righteous. Those who think themselves to be righteous. 
For Lord, every single one of us in this room qualifies for that. And uh, we are grateful, Lord, for the grace that has been, been bestowed uh, upon us all. And Lord, today, as we set our eyes upon these two men, uh, Matthew and Thomas, I pray for your grace to help us to, uh, to be able to see, uh, Lord, just your wisdom and your, your grace in choosing the, these men who indeed are ordinary. They are like many of us. And so I ask for your grace to help us to see that and, and really to see uh, our Savior in, in, in a new light and how, how he calls people from, from all kinds of, of backgrounds and, and all kinds of weaknesses to himself. In Christ's name, amen. So the, the first man we're going to look at this morning is Matthew. Uh, he has a different name as well, the scriptures tell us. What is that other name? Is that Levi? That's right. Say we see that alternate name in Luke chapter five. And, and most of us are, are probably aware that Matthew was uh, had a profession uh, of a tax collector. And I think oftentimes when we think of, of, of tax collector, that that profession, I, we tend to kind of relate that to to our experience here uh, in our day and time in America. And sometimes I think we will. We will try to lump the tax collector profession into uh, maybe the same profession as an IRS worker in our day and time. And there certainly are, are some comparisons, right? I mean, a tax collector in that day collected taxes and IRS workers collect taxes. Uh, but there's, there, there, there are, in reality, most IRS workers in our day are exponentially more respectable than the tax collector was during Jesus's day. In fact, Jesus gives us a few windows to peek in to see how despicable tax collectors really were. In Matthew 18, as an example, Jesus lays out the process for church discipline. If your brother or sister sins against you, go to them just between the two of you. Calling them to repentance, if they refuse to repent, bring one or two others along. If that they refuse to repent, still bring it before the church. If they refuse to do that, even the church, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right. So Jesus could have used any any word that he wanted here, but he 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 could have said, let them be to you as a murderer or as a thief or a prostitute, but he chose the profession of a tax collector. There was at least some incompatibility between being a uh, the character of a Christian and the character of a tax collector. Some incompatibility there, which would lead Jesus to, to, to use that in, um, in this example of church discipline. Another example of this can be found when Jesus is speaking to the crowds about their generation's rejection of both John the Baptist and him. Here's what he says. To what shall then I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say... He has a demon. The son of man, speaking of Jesus, speaking of himself, has come eating and drinking. And you say 
you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. See, one of the reasons that we're giving given for rejecting uh, one of the reasons they were giving for rejecting Jesus was that he was a friend of tax collectors. Tax collectors had a reputation. Tax collectors, uh, a tax collector was a byword for wretched sinner, despicable, the scum of society. No respectable Jew would befriend a tax collector. There's no invitation for a Jew to, to, to say, hey, tax collector, come over to my house and we'll have tea together. If you hang out with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Or in the vernacular of Jesus that day, if you hang out with unclean sinners, you're going to get defiled. And so that's why many people, including the Pharisees, had such a hard time with Jesus because he was a friend of tax collectors. He didn't avoid them. He pursued them. See, tax collectors, if you if, if you're familiar with what they did, they were in charge of, of collecting taxes for the Roman emperor. And there was this unspoken agreement that they could um, they could take what was required, the, required by the, the Roman emperor and add fees on top of that. And whatever those fees would, they would get a percentage of those extra fees. And so it would be like having uh, to pay the U.S. government uh, $5,000 in taxes. And then somebody comes to knocking on your door, a tax collector, and says, hey, I know you got that. That thing that said you got to pay five thousand, but actually there's some extra fees on top of that. You've got to pay seven thousand dollars. And to add insult to injury, those extra fees for the tax collector were often they were very arbitrary. They were not consistent between one tax collector and another, and or in one geographic area or another. So think of the profession as 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 mob like. Think about a mob, and if you live in the mob's neighborhood, you pay whatever the mob requires of you, or else there's going to be consequences. Tax collectors were known to be extortioners. They were known to be greedy. They were known to be liars. They were known to be cheats. This is evident. You may recall when there's another tax collector that Jesus has an experience with, the man by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He had stored up quite the nest egg from, from his uh, lucrative extortion business of tax collecting. Uh, and in Luke 19.2, Luke records that he was a chief tax collector. And by the way, he was rich. Makes sense why he was rich. He had gotten rich off of receipt, not receiving a salary necessarily from the Roman emperor. He had gotten rich off of overcharging residents of the region that he was assigned to. Then at his conversion, Zacchaeus alludes to his slimy past lifestyle of fraud and cheating. And he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back fourfold. In other words, I've defrauded many and I'm going to make restitution for that. That's clearly evidence, certainly of conversion, as Jesus declared. But also it's an indication that Zacchaeus, the tax collector, had some skeletons in his closet. He indeed had defrauded many. This was par for the course for most tax collectors. So I hope you can see, number one, that being a tax collector is not equivalent to being an IRS worker in our day. 
it, it was it was exponentially a, a, a despised profession. Now, it was bad enough to be a tax collector, but there was something that was even worse. Anybody know what that is? No. Being a tax collector who was a Jew, that was worse. If a Jew became a tax collector, that was equivalent to being a traitor. Trading sides to Rome, participating in Rome's pillaging of the Jewish people. Imagine this. Imagine you were a soldier during the time of the American Revolutionary War uh, or the American independence in the Revolutionary War. And you were you were under the command of a man that you greatly respected, a man by the name of Benedict Arnold. But then out of nowhere, he switches sides to the British Army and starts fighting against you. Traitor, traitor, traitor. How would you feel about such a man? You wouldn't feel too good about it, would you? You'd be disgusted. You, 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 would, you, you would not be able to probably, we, here, sitting here this morning, we would probably not be able to, to be able to rightly communicate how hurt and how despicable and how detestable we would think such a man was. That gives us a picture of how the Jews felt about Jewish tax collectors in their day. They were traitors. In fact, if you were a Jew and who became a tax collector, uh, you were you were most likely barred from the temple. You were barred from synagogues. Which is probably, by the way, if you if you think about what Jesus says in that passage we looked at earlier about church discipline, this is probably where that came from, that tax collectors were known to be barred or excommunicated from the temple. Or barred and excommunicated from the synagogue. These are places where God's word would be proclaimed and taught and the scriptures read. And so when Jesus says treat them as you would a, a Gentile or a tax collector, that would be someone who would be outside of, of being able to be a part of, of, of the people of God. And so that makes sense. See, this was a big deal. If you were a Jewish tax collector, this means that you were barred from places where you would actually hear the word of God read and hear the word of God taught. Tax collectors were outcast of Jewish society. They were hated. They were despised. They were alienated. All of this background, I think, is what makes Jesus's calling of Matthew, the tax collector, so stunning. He's not just calling Peter, who was rough around the edges. He's not just calling James and John, who sometimes got too big for their britches, he's calling the worst of sinners, the scum of society, a man who would have been lumped into the category of a Benedict Arnold. who's a traitor. And yet Jesus walks up to him at his tax booth and he says, follow me. And Matthew, he, he gets up and he locks the door of his tax booth for the last time. And he and he walks away from not only a lucrative career of extortion, but he walked away from his old sinful lifestyle forever. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Even the worst of sinners like Matthew. And some of us can relate to Matthew, can't we? When Christ came to us, we were. The scum at the bottom of the barrel. 
living in deep, dark, shameful, wretched sin, and through the gospel, Christ said, follow me, and then strengthen our legs to actually get up and follow him through regeneration, through the new birth, and to leave our old sinful lifestyle behind. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He did that for Matthew. He was a man who was lost. He was a wretched tax collector. He did that for Corey. (laughs) And he did that for you if you're trusting Christ today. And one of the bonus features of Matthew's conversion is, is seeing the new heart of this man. This man who was who was freshly lifted out from the bottom of the barrel. Seeking to introduce his bottom of the barrel friends to Jesus. He seems to have put together an evangelistic banquet. Look what it says in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and that's probably Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Stop. Why would Matthew invite tax collectors and sinners to come and meet Jesus? Say it again. What did you say? Oh, you weren't answering the question. Uh, Luke 9, yes. No, we're talking about Matthew, but we're in Luke chapter 9. Oh, maybe I've got it wrong on here. Gotcha. So the question was, is why why did Matthew invite tax collectors and sinners? That's right. That's all he knew. That's the only friends he had. He didn't have respectable friends. That's right. And so... He invites them to his home. They're reclining at Jesus and his disciples at table. And then it says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That was a big deal. (laughs) That was a big deal. But when he heard it, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy And not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous. But sinners. Matthew believed that if Jesus could save a wretch like him. There was no one amongst his friends who couldn't do the same. He couldn't do the same for. No matter how dark the sin was. No matter how deep the sin was. No matter how spiritually blind the person was. No matter how hard their heart was. They needed a physician, and he had come to introduce them to the physician. I think this is a point that we need to glean from Matthew. To live like we believe that Jesus is still in the business of saving the deadest, blindest, hardest of sinners. We all know them, they're in our families. They're in our circle of friends. They're in our in our places of work. 
And what we often do, I don't know if you're like me, but what we often do is we overthink it. <laughs> we try to scheme to figure out a way to be able to, to get them to hear the gospel. We sometimes, when sometimes what we need to do most is we just need to pull a Matthew and start executing. Right? Have a dinner party. Invite sinners. Go to out to coffee. Invite them to church. Stop the never-ending planning and start executing. And one great way to do that, by the way, is to be a, just to be a better witness or to know how to be a better witness is to be around people who are witnessing. Right? And one great way to do that, I'll tell you, is to go to the creation ex- gospel exhibit that we put on. If you go to that, and you go as a disciple, meaning I'm here to learn, and you listen, because the, the point of that whole booth is to take people from creation to the gospel. And so you're going to hear the gospel proclaimed over and over and over and over again as people are going through that booth and somebody is leading them through it. That's a great way to do that. And then not only willing just to be a disciple and learn, but also to give it a shot. To stumble. To get up and try it again. That's how we learn. Again, because like Matthew, you believe that Jesus is still in the business of saving the worst of sinners, the scum of the earth, just like he did you and just like he did me. One of the interesting things that I find about Matthew is, is his knowledge of the Old Testament. MacArthur says that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew quotes or alludes to the Old Testament roughly about 99 times. That's more than the other gospel writers put together. Considering the likelihood that Matthew uh, wasn't probably hearing the word of God preached and taught and read in the synagogue or in the temple because he was barred from it because he was a tax collector. What that likely means is the way that he learned his Old Testament was that he taught it as a child. Right. He was taught it as a child. This is how he grew up. He he grew up in in quotes church. He knew the word of God. He probably was taught well, but then at some point he turned his back and he walked away. How many of us can say that was my story? I grew up in the church, but then at some point, either physically, meaning I just stopped going to church altogether or spiritually, I was in church, but I walked away. (laughs) I walked away from the faith. How many of us have family or friends that that's still the case? Many of us, I would assume. Well, Matthew's story should give us a ray of hope because by by the grace of the Lord, the prodigal came back. He came back. And the Lord used that biblical knowledge that had been sitting dormant for years and years and years, and he made it alive. And with that knowledge of the Old Testament, the Lord used Matthew to write his gospel account. And we can't even imagine the impact that this book, Matthew's gospel, has had on God's people for almost 2,000 years. Not only can Christ save the worst of sinners, he can deploy them in ways to expand his kingdom that we can't even imagine. That's what he did with Matthew. 
Fast forward and we see Matthew, one of the eleven there with the, the other disciples on the day of Pentecost, being filled with the Spirit and empowered for gospel ministries. But the scriptures are silent after that point on the ministry of Matthew, pretty much. But church tradition tells us that Matthew ministered to the Jews in Jerusalem as well as abroad for the remainder of his life. Until he was burnt at the stake for his faith. He was a man that was devoted to Christ until the end. And so that is Matthew. That is Matthew. What questions do you have about Matthew or comments? That's one. That's that's a great point, Andy. Still doing that in the church today. That's exactly right. What encouragement is is Matthew to your evangelistic efforts? Nobody beyond the reach of Christ. Christ can save the worst of sinners. Christ can save and does save the worst of sinners. Some of us were really the worst of sinners. And what I mean by that is we're all sinners. But some of us were in deeper darkness of sin than others when the Lord called us. That's right. He's not saving you because of Joe. Because, oh, wow, look at Joe and he's almost good. Yeah, no, no, that's right, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we do that, though, sometimes in our evangelistic efforts, don't we? We look at somebody and we say, ain't no way, ain't no way, and the Lord 
those are often the people the Lord saves. <laughs> Before he does the ones that we think, oh, there's a possibility for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else for Matthew before we move move on? Okay. All right. Let's turn to Thomas. Thomas. Thomas was also known as Didymus or the twin. And he was one of the twelve. He was he has quite a, a, a famous uh nickname that you don't see in the Bible, but who can tell me what that nickname is? Doubting Thomas. How'd you like to be known as Doubting Thomas? How did uh, how did Thomas get that nickname? Yeah, yeah. He doubted that the other apostles had seen Jesus. They doubt. He doubted their their witness. You're right. You're right. So, that's right. Ah, he was fortunate for us, though, as we will soon see. Yes. So, on uh, based on uh, the very few accounts that we have of, of Thomas in the Gospels, Thomas seems to have been a man who, like many of us, struggled with doubts. Uh, perhaps uh, a man who is prone to depression, a man who uh, was prone to anxiety. He seems to have had had been a have been a glass half half empty kind of guy, right? Not a glass half full, but a glass half empty kind of guy. Often looking at situations with with skepticism, with negativity. Doctor MacArthur's book, uh, Doctor MacArthur labels him. Thomas the pessimist, Thomas the pessimist, and I think that's a, 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 a one word that kind of encapsulates what we see of Thomas in the Gospels. You may remember that uh, Thomas pipes in in the account leading up to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus had just learned that Lazarus was was ill and on the brink of death and. We pick up in John chapter 11, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. This is an important part right here. The disciples said to him, Rabbi. The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, he's fallen asleep. He'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he would meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there 
so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Heart of an optimist. Let us go that we may die with him. When a pessimist looks at a situation, he tends to to see the negatives. Uh, Pessimism tends to predict the worst possible outcome. And that's what we see here with Thomas. Instead of seeing the upside (laughs) that Jesus is going to to uh, perform a a miracle, uh, something miraculous with Lazarus, he he sees the downside. We're probably going to die. Some of us are like that, aren't we? <laughs> Our thoughts are, are, are magnetized towards the negative. If you're a pessimist, and, and as an example, and you find a, a lump on your body somewhere, you're probably already writing your obituary in your head. That's how pessimism works. You go to the extreme of the negative extreme. But, but one of the encouraging parts of getting a peek into Thomas's pessimistic pessimistic attitude is that pessimism doesn't disqualify us from being used greatly in Christ's kingdom as the story of Thomas shows us in fact even right here in Thomas's pessimism we see hints of loyalty faith and courage he doesn't say we're probably going to die so so let's just not go He doesn't say, you guys are crazy, I'm not going. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. The very act of of his going and his telling all, all the other disciples to come along shows evidence that he was ready to die for Christ. If he thought he was going to die and he went, that means he was ready to die with Christ. So you can struggle with pessimism and still love Christ. And still be radically devoted to him. That's Thomas's story. Dr. MacArthur says in his book, he says he loved Christ in such a way that he didn't want to live without Christ. If Jesus was going to die, Thomas was going to die with him. Better to die and be with Christ than to be left behind. Thomas, the pessimist, had a deep love for Christ. I think that's why we see him absent when Jesus first appears to all of the disciples after his resurrection in John chapter 20. Jesus had 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 died and we can only imagine what that must have done to Thomas the pessimist. Remember, his mind immediately goes to that darker place, that 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 place where it's it's not optimistic. He was broken. He was driven to depths of despair like. Probably like no other disciple. He just wanted to be alone. He didn't want to hear how to pick up the pieces and move on. He, his heart was broken. We read in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
See, Thomas was like a, a young lady who had given her heart to a young strapping soldier with hopes of, of marrying him, but then her heart was shattered into pieces when she learns that he had died in battle. She vows to not let her heart be vulnerable again. The pain is too much for her to bear. I think this is what's behind Thomas's doubts here. He had risked his heart with Jesus and Jesus's death had crushed him. The pain was so thick and so real and so deep. And he wasn't ready to add any more hot scolding pain on top of that by having his hopes crushed yet, yet once again, regardless of, of what the other apostles claimed they had seen. I think he was protecting his heart. What happens next shows that Christ is ready to meet us in our doubts and to meet us with hope in the midst of our, our pain. Here's what it says in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Jesus is saying. Thomas, I know you have doubts. I know you've been hurt. But I'm alive. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm giving you everything you need to believe. And then we see one of the most hope filled, profound statements in all of Scripture. From the mouth of a pessimist. <laughs> Thomas answered. My Lord and my God. An undeniable declaration that Jesus is God. For us, this is yet another reason, by the way, to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was no hoax. That it was real, the most pessimistic one out of the bunch, the one who refused to believe at first, saw Christ and he believed. It was the hardest for him out of all of them to believe. And yet he believed. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think that that's a, that was necessarily a jab on Thomas's failure to believe at first. I think it's an encouragement more so for us. Thomas believed because Christ revealed himself to Thomas. And that's the only way that you and I were able to believe, because Christ revealed himself to us through his word, by his spirit. And whether you're a, a pessimist or an op optimist today sitting in this room, you believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you believe. And Jesus says you're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed because Christ did that for you. He's the one that brought that belief, enabled that belief in you. And tradition tells us that Thomas carried the gospel as, as far as India. Apparently, there are some churches in India today 
that, that can be traced back to Thomas's evangelistic work there. Tradition also tells us that Thomas was martyred for his faith by being run through with a spear. And MacArthur comments that that's a fitting way uh, for Thomas to die as one who had felt the spear mark in his Savior's side to be run through with the spear. He too felt <laughs> he felt the spear. So that is Thomas, the pessimist, Thomas, the pessimist. What encouragement is Thomas, the pessimist to us? 